0: From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you JPM and Chase buy Nutmeg to help them launch a British digital banking service. Molly's new funding pushes them to a 5.4 billion euro valuation and brings a challenge to Stripe in the European payment space. And we have a small announcement of our own. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 540 540, uh, of Fintech Insider. My name is Adam Davis, and I'm joined by my 11FS colleague and co-host, one and only Mr. Simon Taylor. Uh, si, how are you doing?
1: I'm really well, Adam. So excited to be back on the show and back with you. Of course, I'm in good hands today um, and really excited for our little announcement. We'll come back to that in a little bit, but it's, it's just a small one. There's a lot of fintech news we got to get to first, so let's let's jump through all of that.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's like it's it's announcements galore at the moment. Uh, it's been a busy, busy week, uh, and we are uh, joined by a couple of awesome guests, making a welcome return. We have, of course, the one and only Emily Nicole. Emily, I'm always on. Fintech podcast with you. This is like just like a norm now. Uh, you are obviously the Fintech correspondent for Financial News. Welcome back to the show. Um, lots of stories to cover this week. Excited to dig into them with you. Uh, and alongside Emily making his Fintech Insider debut, we have Shane Hapak, uh, who's the CEO of Molly. Um, Shane, how are you doing?
2: Doing great. Been a great week. Okay, let's jump
0: straight in. So the first news story that we had, this was carried by Reuters, again, all over your social this week. JP Morgan buys the investment platform Nutmeg in a UK retail push. So the specifics on this, JP Morgan Chase has bought Nutmeg as part of JPM's expansion into the UK retail banking and investment market. Nutmeg at the moment has around 140,000 clients and more than three and a half billion pounds in assets under management. And it will form the basis of JPM's retail digital wealth management offering international nationally. So not just the UK, but they're looking at expansion from here. The US bank is looking to take on established British rivals, both traditional banks and fintechs, uh, with its plan to become a full service retail bank under its Chase brand. And crucially, and I think this is something that we can discuss in a second, we'll look to compete with Goldman Sachs. Marcus brand, which has obviously launched a couple of years ago with their deposit uh, product, but is also looking to get into the wealth management and investment space. Financial terms of the deal have not been disclosed, but a source close to the transaction said it valued nutmeg at nearer to 700 million pounds. That's 972 million dollars. Um, we have a soundbite from Anna Herrera, who's the, who broke the story from Reuters. Unfortunately, Anna couldn't join us, but she did send through a recording and, and here's some of her thoughts.
3: So I was definitely surprised by the acquisition, especially because Nutmeg was was backed by Goldman. So I would have expected them to to buy them maybe more. And and considering that they are, you know, pivoting Marcus more into wealth, um, and investment rather than um, like checking accounts or retail banking here in the UK. Um, I I was also surprised by the price, which seemed pretty high, but I guess overall it does show the commitment that the bank is willing to make here in the UK to grow their presence, I'm kind of waiting in anticipation to see what that will look like and how they will be able to capture customers here in the UK, given that, you know, it's a quite crowded market, both on the sort of incumbent side, but also on the digital banking challenger side. I'm also keen to see how much they keep of Nutmeg, if it was more just a move to get customers and some initial assets. It's it's not many assets for JP Morgan standards and not many customers for JP Morgan standards, but I guess it's better than none. So I, I wonder how much, you know, what happens to this deal further on with the integration, how much will reveal whether it was about the tech or just the customers or the brand. And, but anyways, it's definitely a super interesting move and, I'm keen to see what the American banks do here and how that Im- it impacts the local market.
0: Thanks for that, Anna. Uh, Emily, uh, one for I'll come, I think, to you. You wrote about this for the financial news. I mean, there's quite a lot to unpick here, but first thoughts is this, I guess, a surprising move by JPM? And I suppose wider than this, why do all these American banks want to come over to the UK?
4: Um, in terms of whether it's a surprising move by JP Morgan, I don't know. Like, as Anna pointed to, everyone was quite surprised simply because Goldman Sachs was already an investor in Nutmeg. But actually, a lot of the funds that Nutmeg offers to its customers are JP Morgan funds. So... Anna made a point about, you know, is this for the customers or for the tech or whatever, but JP Morgan already had access to quite a lot of those customers. It was going to be making a bit of money off them somewhere. So I doubt it was for that purpose. And obviously, JP Morgan has a lot more than 3.5 billion in assets under management as well. And it's a drop in the ocean in terms of what the UK asset management market is. So um whether it's for the tech, I think that's probably more likely. Just because, you know, they're keeping on board all of the staff. Neil Alexander, who's the chief executive of Nutmeg, will continue to run the business as well as the executive team once it's inside JP Morgan, although it'll be under the Chase branding, probably. Um, So I think it's kind of, Nutmeg might probably stay in the format we know it in, it's just whether or not JP Morgan decides to fully embrace the Chase branding, which... If you think about if you were a bank coming to the UK for the first time where not a lot of consumers are going to know the name JP Morgan in the way that they'll know Barclays or Lloyds or Santander, um, you would probably want to be hitting the Chase branding in every angle you can. And if wealth management is one of those things that you're offering, you're probably going to stick Chase at the top of it. Um, so I think that's likely to stay there. Why the American banks are coming to the UK? Um I'm not entirely sure of that, to be honest. I think the interesting part that J.P. Morgan has to play here is that it is, like, like I said, following Goldman with the Marcus play. It's coming here and wanting to tackle consumers and retail banking, and maybe th- that's part of their thinking is that it's a whole new avenue for them to pursue. And perhaps the I don't know, maybe there's some metrics behind it that you guys might be more familiar with. our UK consumers. You know, do you get more bang for
0: your buck with them? Do we put more of our money in a bank than an American does? Well, I mean, it, well, it, it, yes and no. Um, I, I think it's, uh, I mean, for me sitting here, and so si, I'll open this up to you in a sec. I mean, it is, uh, we always advocate now that UK is a super saturated market, but very digitally savvy. And obviously, you know, from a consumer perspective, you've got a, a ripe audience, those who are very, very accustomed to having digital products. But you also have a very saturated audience who, you know, are, are already, you know, know, particularly multi-banks. So it is uh, it, it is a surprising jump off point, especially with Brexit, et cetera, et cetera. You know, is this really the best place now to launch a product to then launch your revenue into Europe, which is kind of what this, uh, or certainly the PR exercise that came out of uh, JPM was, w- was talking through. So I, I wanted to get your thoughts on this one.
1: Yeah, so there's a couple of things going on behind the scenes, isn't there? Um, We've seen announcements from uh, JP Morgan that they intend to launch the Chase Sapphire brand in the UK as as sort of a retail consumer offering. So if you're going to launch a retail consumer offering, then having a a wealth advisory thing alongside that kind of makes sense. And if you look at what the Sapphire brand is in the US, it is a premium end of the market sort of play for that um, higher net worth individual. And if you're going after the sort of 30, 40 something, with a little bit more disposable income potentially as you look at the UK market and say who has that segment today wrapped up who you know who started opening their their pension plans and their ISAs 10, 15 years ago, they, you would have probably done that on Nutmeg. Um, they're one of the longest standing yeah. uh, ways to, to get that. So what they've done is essentially buy distribution. Um, but if you look at that, so 700 million for 140,000 customers, that's about 5,000 pounds per customer they've paid to to acquire that business. So over the lifetime of that, those customers are going to have to pay that back. Um, you know, the nature of wealth management distribution is you get all of your payback towards the, the 30 year time horizon and banks are pretty good at spreading that money across that time horizon. But still, um, the UK market is a hard place to make robo work. Um, and Wealth and Advisory just isn't the same business it is in the US, where you get these monsters like Charles Schwab and, uh, of course, you know the real new market entrants like Robinhood and, and Acorns that can make a business in a completely different way. So I sort of stand back and look at it and go, are you trying to copy and paste a U.S. model onto a U.K. market where the economics are different and the consumer yeah. is different? It's a really interesting question to see, you know, what, what's the strategy here? Is it driven by, well, this works in the U.S., so let's try it in the U.K.? Um, as I, If you study history, then uh, J.P. Morgan tried to enter the credit card space in the U.K. a couple of times. I think it bought a couple of credit card portfolios in 2004, 2006, and ended up selling those to BarclayCard in 2008. Um, So this could be a stutter step or it could be a real market entry. But the fact that Goldman's here with Marcus um, I think and, and has really had quite a bit of success with markers in the UK. Suggests that maybe there's a there's a tough act to follow there.
0: Yeah, and uh, Shane, i was just going to um, revert to you because it's um, this is an example of a big US company buying a European company. We're going to talk about your raise in a minute, but there's been another one this week as well, uh, which just dropped earlier on today, which was that Visa bought Tink, which is another just you know uh, a t- two billion pound uh, two billion dollars I should say uh, acquisition um, in. In your mind, I suppose um, this trend of U.S. companies buying European companies—I'll still include England in that uh, on this um, podcast—is that a trend that you see increasing more and more as U.S. companies and giants try and get more foothold into European FS?
2: Yeah, I mean certainly in the financial services and payment space, you've got a couple trillion dollars of market cap sitting in the U.S. and a bunch of other challenges—you know, trapped overseas cash and a whole host of reasons to be looking at, at companies in Europe. I think. For me, the JP Morgan is very different from Visa and and Tink. Visa is drawing a a moat around the core of its business and saying, "Okay, who's everybody that's involved enough in the periphery of what I do, um, you know, but isn't going to be angry at me if it's one of my big suppliers and kind of issuing banks. So uh, it's quite interesting how they've literally gone around and said, we need a bet in every single space adjacent to our business. We don't care what it is, but we're going to have one everywhere um, like it's like betting on every single roulette number, but um, uh, you know, I look. Hey, for J.P. Morgan, that's a small bet. Um, I've I've been a shareholder in Betterment actually since 2011, and it's frustrating because these businesses that gather assets and, and under management—they're still growing at 20 some percent. I mean, Betterment's got 26 billion or something, but they don't make money, and the, the exit strategy has always been a little bit unclear. So you know, who is going to end up owning this and why? So I mean. Personally, I was happy to see that news. I so thought, well, maybe, uh, maybe I'll finally see uh, a path to, to exit on my, my Betterment investment. But that, but that's a big, that's a big U.S. player, right? So that's yeah. They're not, they're not really in Europe in any any meaningful way. But Europe has always been hard to crack for American businesses any other way. Um, yeah. I think you everything you do, you end up with at least seventy percent of your revenue in the U.S. market. Almost, you know, it's almost like an invisible yeah. shield that can't be pierced. Yeah. And I
0: guess, so, I mean, Nutmeg did lose uh, last year, last set of financial results that have been published, they lost 22 million pounds in the calendar. year. I suppose, Sai, is this actually, I mean, if you were sitting there at Nutmeg right now, I mean, obviously you've got an exit, it's fantastic. But from your perspective, why is this good for their business, especially if it's going to continue to be, to run as Nutmeg?
1: Well, so if most of their funds are, as Emily says, provided by JP Morgan, then suddenly you've got a, a cost advantage um, by sort of partnering with your supplier. Um, they, they can start to be a lot more competitive in the market with some of their pricing potentially, um, which may help with some of the customer acquisition and some of their cost base, which may indeed in turn help with some of the profitability. Um, but it, but I do think that that last point that Shane made is, is a really, really interesting one. That ability to come into the European market. Might might be easier to acquire somebody that already knows about it, um, that's already um, built some momentum. And as we see, uh, Acorns and Wealthfront and many others starting to do, uh, starting to really diversify their portfolio. They're starting to get into debit cards. They're starting to get into the cross sell. So it feels like everybody's trying to rebundle fintech. Um, and would you see Nutmeg as part of that strategy for a chase market entry in the UK, which is, this is one piece of the puzzle, yeah. it's not the puzzle by itself. Yeah,
0: it does feel like they're building an ecosystem to launch. Um okay. Right. Let's move on to the next story uh, because we're up against time. And I wanted to cover this, obviously, Shane, uh, in quite a bit of detail because you're on. Uh, Your Series C funding, Molly Series C funding, puts uh, you guys at the top five most valuable European startups and top 20 worldwide. Uh, So this was carried on Finextra. Again, it's been all over social. Uh, Molly, uh, one of the fastest growing payment service providers in Europe, has sealed a 665 million euro Series C funding round at a valuation of 5.4 billion euros. Uh, making you guys the third most uh, valuable privately held European fintech behind Klarna and Checkout.com. The round was led by Blackstone Growth, which is Blackstone's growth uh, equity investing business. The funding takes the total amount raised by Molly to 780 million euros. Um, Launched in 2004, Molly serves more than 120,000 monthly active merchants of all sizes across the continent. Uh, And in 2020, the firm processed more than 10 billion euros in transactions, and is on track to handle more than $20 billion during 2021. Uh, you guys have also got Deliveroo, Gymshark, Wiki, uh, Atorium as cl- customers, so p- plenty of different businesses that are relatively household name. Shane, I'll come to you first of all on this. Um, Congratulations on the funding and obviously on the valuation. Can you tell you guys aren't launched in the UK yet, uh, and we've got probably a principally, pro- well, predominantly UK audience. So can you give us, I suppose, for those who are a bit less familiar, on who Molly is, exactly, sort of what you do, and um, obviously what your plans are as a result of the funding.
2: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that, by the way. Um, so Molly is effectively the, the, the stripe of Europe is probably the single biggest punchline I've been able to deliver that most people go, yeah, okay, I get I get what you mean. So similar ethos, developer-friendly, easy to use, you know focused on getting small businesses going quickly, focused on really delivering a great customer experience for companies that typically don't have the investment or the expertise to kind of build a lot of their own payments infrastructure in-house. So I think the big difference is obviously for a number of years, Molly was... Um, content to just go organically took venture capital quite late in its life cycle compared to some of the larger U S competitors. But, uh, after TCV invested in our B round, uh, I think the company began to see the size of the potential. And obviously when I joined the business, I said, we would really love to build a European challenger in this space. Uh, and, uh, you know, the the total addressable market is definitely there and the, the product market fit is definitely there. So, uh, several of us chasing the same goal, ultimately. But uh, I think that benefits the, the merchant customers uh, with the with the offer they get and all the competition.
0: Um, there, there's so much I could ask you right now. I wanted just to start on your journey in particular, because uh, you joined in April of this year, spent 10 years at WorldPay. Um, I just wanted to talk about, so I guess, your journey, uh, why you joined the organization, before we just get into a little bit more about the specifics, obviously, of the deal. Uh,
2: yeah, I just, I love the idea of being in a, in a series BC growth company. I mean, WorldPay had, uh, uh, when I left, was a $90 billion public company with 54,000 employees and a number of different business lines around payments and, and fintech, I mean, we have everything from core bank software to kind of capital markets infrastructure. So I really enjoyed the pure e-commerce payments bit of it. I spent most of my payments career in enterprise. So my main clients were Google's, Netflix, Amazon's of the world. And... These companies I think it's just on an amazingly stellar job at getting efficiency out of the system. The level of sophistication of a Netflix in payment processing is just extraordinary. They've got teams of people uh, dealing with payment providers, a global infrastructure, you know, all sorts of in-house data analytics, etc. You know, what what you can see is that that those benefits haven't accrued to the small customers yet. Um, and companies like they are really trying to Push that uh, amazing product offer down market, make it easier for small businesses to get access to some of that same amazing technology. So that was the principal reason I did it. And It was just a good platform and a business for growth. And, uh, you know, I, I was quite happy to relocate to Amsterdam and uh, really enjoy, I think, building out uh, the European challenger that we know we can be.
0: Yeah. Um, Just um, One more question before I open up to the other. I mean, this is, there's so many questions, but one in particular that I've always found is if you're trying to conquer Europe, uh, the geographic differences and cultural differences between each of the countries and the SMBs within those countries must make, I guess, having one type of service quite difficult to standardize to a degree. How, I guess, are you finding that in terms of being able to, you know, provide a product essentially for almost one region as in europe but with so many different sort of subcultures within that region and so many different regulations within that region as well
2: yeah i think that's in our dna that's where we try to add a lot of value you know we we don't treat europe like a blob on the map you know we treat it like a series of, of individual preferences that it is and series of individual buyer behaviors customer behaviors so um that's a great start point. You know, for, it's where do we take it from here? I think, uh, you know, that expertise is portable. Um, you know, so one of the key reasons we went out to raise capital is to say, okay, we believe there's a fit for a product like this in multiple parts of the world. And there's there's amazing companies dedicated to the payment space, right? We we look up to Stripe as a, as a super successful business that we'd be happy to, to a degree, kind of follow in the footsteps. I think both of our companies are, um, are, are focused on uh, the rest of the market uh, where, you know where the service levels are still quite low, and you know, there's still quite a lot of payments volume sat with uh, with traditional banks or uh, or other players in, in the industry. So that's our our collective opportunity.
0: Yeah, because I mean, if, if you look at the real big boys in payments, you're looking at you know sort of the the first datas or fi serves, obviously WorldPay, where you've just come from, you know processing you know massive massive volumes of payments, um, but not necessarily fit for a, a sort of a modern day internet smb business and i think that's really you know that's sort of underpinned why you know how stripes become so successful paypal and then obviously y- y- yourselves um simon the, the payment space right now is like it, it's off on wonder right now um wh- where do you see this continuing to go
1: oh my goodness where won't it go um, <laughs> i think the 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 opportunity i think Shane said it, it's when it's classic disruption theory, which is going after the most underserved segment in the market, the long tail, and really building tools that really change the cost model of accepting payments. And what we've seen, uh, as that's happened, as it's become developer centric, as it's become API first, as People have done uh, an awful lot of work to make things look effortless. You know, uh, one of my favorite sayings is you can tell a lot of effort went into making this effortless. And for a small business, that's so crucial because what you don't want to be doing is arguing with your bank about who your ISO should be and what level of PSD2 and strong customer authentication. And like, all of the stuff that comes with accepting payments online, you just want to sell stuff and you just want to get moving quickly and you want to get money through the door and then maybe you need other things. And and I think Stripe has really shown how that can build a roadmap into other things. If you've got the payments flow um, and you've got that merchant relationship, suddenly all of these other things, these adjacent problems start to pop up around it like capital, like identity, like um, managing your everyday spend, like integrating with accounting. So that whole operating system of a small business is just really, really powerful and providing others the tools to do that. Um, So I really think um, to the point you made, Adam, this is one thing that people look at uh, the US quite a lot and then they look at Europe and try and Mm copy-paste. And this is a classic example where that is just so incredibly hard to do. Um, Each market has its quirks. Like the Dutch um ideal system is 75% yeah. i believe of payments in the Dutch market uh, and there are so many examples of that where it's not um 27 member countries using the same systems it's 27 countries that happen to have some level of integration on a, on a political and 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 uh, policy level but it really isn't like the states where you get a statewide license and then you go it's very very different so uh, payments is huge uh, API first is huge but it's those adjacencies that I think really excite me about what what could happen next with payments. Once you've got that, once you've got the data, what happens next is is really exciting.
2: Yeah, we we know we only cover 10 to 11% of what a small business spends its overall uh, cash register on or its wallet. So, you know, payroll, as you mentioned, working capital, tax, the uh, physical logis- logistics and shipping. So, I mean, there there are a lot of really interesting areas where I think if someone's still moving paper around or you know there's a there's a non instantaneous version of the product then uh we see that as a as a medium term opportunity
0: yeah small, small business expense management as well i mean i'm literally i mean I, we know from working at 11fs that, that <laughs> that's something to you know that that's also a big pain point uh in the life of an smb um emily just one quick one for you uh in terms of i suppose i i mentioned it before about the influx of money you know from the us into the into europe into into european fintechs i suppose is this um i you know without sort of getting at your magic wand but is this uh, sort of the start of growth of you know big big funding rounds big seed rounds into european companies just given the fact that maybe you know people look at the european companies and the way that they've tackled the complexities across this one sort of continent with as i said many subcultures you know it's a it's a fantastic foundation to then go potentially into the far east into the middle east or even into america and actually those movements become a lot easier because of the experiences that they've had. Is is this smart money that's coming into Europe now? Because normally you'd only see this kind of raise, you know, from US companies into US fintech.
4: Yeah, well, I think like looking at a lot of the investors that that came on in this round, they are mostly like venture capital firms. So they're not necessarily ones that will have an agenda of their own in terms of wanting to be able to use this to go elsewhere. Um, Although, obviously, as Molly grows, they will be able to reach new markets with it. But I spoke to Shane f- for this announcement earlier this week. So this is the second time I'm speaking to him this week, actually. <laughs> um, and the first thing I asked him was, you raised $90 million two years ago, and now you're raising $665 million. That's a 788% jump in your round size. And it's not even been that long in between. So why did that happen? And Shane's answer was, well, the investors are the investors. We can't miss up an opportunity to get the people who, who have offered to come on board with Molly. And they only want to take a certain amount of round size. And that's exactly it, right? We're seeing a lot more later stage businesses. Obviously, Molly, even at Series C, isn't that late, but, um, they're the ones that are snapping up the venture capital at the moment. Early stage businesses aren't taking as much. Um, and round sizes are getting bigger and bigger. And Molly is a clear example of how, you know, the opportunities there, Checkout.com had the same thing. It burst onto the scene with a 250 million dollar series A a year or two ago Um, and Klarna as well raising a billion earlier this year payments companies in particular are really booming and these are the round sizes they are taking so I don't know whether or not it's a kind of a funnel of smart money coming into Europe as you put it but this is how investors see the market now this is the amount that you're going to have to look at raising if you want to get those kinds of investors at that stage of a mm. company um, and obviously I'm, I'm just saying all well, this is if I'm Shane so he probably has something <laughs> to say as well
2: on it no, but so we, obviously you know we, we our contemporaries raised money in between, and that surely that had something to do with it right? You want to make sure that um, the market never perceives you as unwilling to to put the balance sheet down to you know, to make all the big investments that are necessary. I think the difference for, for us was as a payments only business, we probably could have been just fine as payments only business which has been profitable throughout its life cycle, we probably could have stopped at a series B, but as you said earlier, now that the ambition for a lot of us, you know, clearly, I think Stripe has really led the way there with the adjacent services. That's some of those are capital intensive, and they go all the way up and until and including getting a banking charter. So, you know, that's that's something yeah. where we really think that the capital can only help us, and we have to spend it wisely, like any good company. But uh, you know, we definitely see the value in it.
0: Uh, just one last question for yourself uh, the company's founder uh, is Adrian mole's nickname is Molly hence the name he's got a really interesting backstory he started this in 2004 in his I've read in his mum's Base, but this sounds like, you know, a very stereotypical startup. But um, it's obviously been a long time since 2004 till now. I suppose in terms of that growth journey, you've obviously spoken to him, you know, off the back of the, this announcement. And uh, how how is he feeling right now, having started that company so long ago, uh, you know, in, in such a sort of a small entity to now, you know, being this kind of behemoth?
2: Yeah, proud. I mean, obviously, um, you know, he's, he's and he's, yeah, he's also got the founder DNA for for MessageBird and MessageBird and Molly have a shared common history with you know making SMS uh, and then having payment links attached to it. So, you know, I would say Molly was Stripe before there was a Stripe. So, what I think you saw was uh, after after Stripe had so much success, it was a little bit of why not us? So. I think he's been quite pleased lately that the level of ambition is has really woken up and and we're we're running really, really hard. I think the the growth uh, brought into online small business by virtue of the the pandemic really I think showed everybody, hey, this is crazy potential. and you know I just got the the payments report from the Dutch government today this fourteen percent of spend is online, which was a massive jump from nine, you know which means eighty six. Is not online, yeah. Which is uh, you know, which is what gets investors so excited because in our cohort, you know, modern younger people, they if you ask them what pe- what they think, they'll oh, it's about fifty fifty, yeah. So uh, you know, just the size of the addressable market remains enormous, even with the kind of one-time displacement that we seem to have seen with the with COVID. Yeah. Um, thanks so much
0: for that, Shane. Uh, we're going to take a quick pause here whilst we're we'll here for more sponsors, uh, and we'll be uh, back shortly. Temenos is the world's
5: leader in banking software, helping over 3,000 banks serve over 1.2 billion people. Our purpose is to make banking better. Together with our community, we make banks more successful, individuals better banked, and society better served. With our software, banks can create more human, differentiated digital experiences, hyper-efficient business models to benefit the bank and their customers, and simplify and transform their back office. Our clients are the highest performing banks with cost income ratios which are twice better than the industry average. Learn more at Temenos.com. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Visa's FinTech Fast Track program is a quick and easy way to connect to the Visa network and issue payment credentials. Whether you're an up and coming neobank, modernizing B2B payments, or launching a new crypto solution, amazing things can happen when your innovation is combined with the power of one of the world's largest payment networks. Learn more about the possibilities at partner.visa.com. Looking to sharpen your competitive edge when it comes to design? Join hundreds of subscribers using 11FS Pulse to solve their users' problems and get to market faster. Discover over 4,000 user journeys from global brands like Revolut, Curve and Soldo and learn how to design winning customer propositions with our expert analysis. Get started today by visiting bit.ly forward slash get a pulse demo.
0: And welcome back. Uh, and we'll move on to the next story, which is uh, AML regulations driving up compliance costs across the UK. Uh, this was on Finextra. So this is a new report that's been produced by LexisNexis uh, Risk Solutions, and it's found that AML regulations, uh, more so than criminal threats, are intensifying compliance costs for UK FS companies. Uh, surveying over 300 financial institutions across the UK, the report found a culture of over-cautiousness leads to Over reporting of suspicious activity, resulting in higher volumes of work. Uh, The cost equates to an annual spend of 28.7 billion across UK financial institutions and is expected to grow to over 30 billion. By 2023, uh, firms in the survey reported an average annual AML compliance cost of 186.5 million. Ooh, uh, with larger institutions citing costs to over 300 million pounds each year. Uh, si, I'll come to you first on this. Uh, you've written for our unfiltered newsletter before about AML, um, about your thoughts on the effectiveness or uh, lack of of AML policies. Uh, I'm sure you got thoughts on the story. Uh, where where do you want to start?
1: Yeah, I'm not surprised in this story at all. Um, so I wrote a blog called um, AML is the world's most ineffective policy experiment. Um, there's some studies by the UN and there are some other studies by um, academics that suggests that the policy intervention has less than a 0.1% impact on criminal activity. And let's remind ourselves what anti-money laundering is designed to do. Uh, this is designed to prevent terrorist financing. It's designed to prevent human trafficking. It's designed to prevent all of the ills and all of the bad causes around the world. And yet this policy that we insist that people use has, from all studies, been proven to be ineffective. And so what do we do? We insist that people spend more and more money doing the same thing. That would be like having a broken car and spending more money changing the, the, the windows on the thing. It's just useless. Um, and so uh, to say I'm frustrated about this is, is an understatement. I think second only to the climate crisis, this is one of the things that should be headline news every single day. Um, the fact that uh, what we insist on from a financial institution is that they know who their customer is, KYC. And the way they do that, of course, is by looking at documentary evidence. Maybe it's your address, maybe it's your passport. Um, of course, criminals know how to forge those things. Um, so what we don't check is how effective Um, those checks are, we just check that somebody did it. It's a binary, are you getting that information, yes or no? We then expect the banks to do some customer due diligence and maybe some enhanced due diligence. So is this person politically exposed? Are they from a country that's got sanctions? And so on. And the processes we use to do this, again, are mostly based in paper. And if anything happens that um, is suspicious, the banks have to raise something called a Suspicious Activity Report, or a SAR. That is what they are on the hook to do. And so the overcautious reporting that this talks about is banks have been actually given some massive, massive fines over the past couple of years. Um, Very big name banks, HSBC, many, many others that you could name, pretty much every bank you can think of has been fined for having ineffective controls. Um, But what they have to do and what they've then done is hired lots of people to raise suspicious activity reports. And once they've raised a suspicious activity report, their job is done. So the thing that they're on the hook to do is make that report. Then law enforcement takes over and has to start trying to enforce uh, whatever has been raised as suspicious. Now, the law enforcement is where the ineffective thing is because they're massively underfunded and there are good people trying to do hard work to fix this. Don't get me wrong, this is not a slur on those people. But so if you're a bank and you've been fined billions for not having raised enough of these reports. And the only thing you can really do to change that is to raise more of them. Are you going to overcautiously raise a few more? Yes, you absolutely would. Um, and increasingly, the community is now start trying to move to a measure of effectiveness. Um, the Financial Action Task Force, FATF, is trying to push that through the G20. There are really good tech solutions starting to emerge, like Comply Advantage and Hummingbird, that really improve this. But we've got such a long way to go.
0: Yeah, I was going to pop to you, Shane, without dropping sort of an enormity of this question, but what can we do about it? Um, But I suppose uh, within your business, uh, which is probably the best place to start, you obviously deal with payments uh, day in, day out uh, and high volumes of payments. Um, How much of a burden is is, is AML to you and how uh, how much value are you getting for the money that you're spending?
2: Yeah, that's a tough one, right? I mean, we're to stuff is supervised and regulated by the Dutch authority, and uh, it's it's a it's extremely topical for all the reasons that were just brought up. Um, I mean, I sh- I share the view that it's a little bit of a of a blunt instrument, and you know, I suppose we are working with Comply Advantage, by the way, amongst others. So we you know we are trying to put software on this because otherwise it becomes uneconomical to serve small companies if you need fifty seven humans to to check their data. I would say. You know, it's a little confusing that in twenty twenty one we're not in the space where the the government can actually do more with with registers and data. Um you know, you would think if there's any moment in human history when the government should be able to track citizens and and verify identity, it's in you know, in the in the grip of a pandemic. But I think maybe with the exception of Singapore, um, everybody else is still sort of fumbling around with track and trace and various other things. So you know something like a company's house on steroids is probably the only systemic way that we're ever going to fix this sort of thing i mean it's just data and it it should be held on any reputable entity in a way that's accessible through some sort of centralized store but it's, we're a long way from that right that's a but i do i do agree that's the only structural solution
0: yeah, it's uh, it, It's definitely easy when you're building a proposition and whatever country that you're building it in has that central repository. We've been doing a lot of work in Singapore quite recently, and it does make that kind of customer flow and then sort of service design that sits underneath it a lot easier to manage and to uh, and to map. Uh, Emily, your thoughts on this?
4: Yeah, I mean, actually, as Shane was speaking there, something just sprung to mind. There's been a lot of talk at the moment about central bank digital currencies and how those are going to be developed And one of the things that keeps being brought up is that probably a component of that might need to be identification, right? That banks and central banks themselves might need to have to start thinking about how they would identify the customers using those currencies as a way to make sure that they aren't being used maliciously. Um, But with that comes another layer of problem in that if banks are having to get that data and have in some way manage that data... The information commissioner's office in the UK or other data regulators will also then have to be looking into central banks and making sure that they're not misusing that data. And then who is the one that is in charge of monetary stuff moving around, really? Like, is it the ICO? Is it the Bank of England? Is it like central banks in Geneva? You know, you don't really know. Um, and the same thing goes for this, right, with anti-money laundering regulations. If these banks are going, need to be tracking the, um, where their money is going more frequently and have more information on where it's going and to whom and then to be able to flag those things properly to law enforcement if it's going to bad places. There's a whole data protection issue with that as well.
1: And I think that's the key point, Emily, the the trade off is between sort of privacy and security is is, is, a, is the age-old tale, but actually there are privacy preserving technologies that have been beaten with the AML stick and the kyc stick that could actually help us manage that trade-off. so at the moment stable coins and crypto assets are very much seen as a, a you know an anti-statist and anti-centralization sort of movement which, Maybe for the creators, they are. But actually, privacy-preserving technology is potentially a good thing for central bank digital currencies, for everybody else involved, because reducing the data burden has to be a good thing for all involved. Empowering the consumer, the business, to own their own data and have an algorithm come to the data rather than spreading it everywhere else reduces my attack surface. And I also think it reduces the cost of serving those customers. So the big takeaway from this story for me is when you're driving up the cost, of running a financial services business, you're also driving up the hurdle to which it costs to be able to serve that customer. So what you're essentially doing is you're creating an exclusionary environment. Um, and that means that the more we drive up compliance costs, the more we exclude, financially exclude, large populations in society. So we have to look at this much more creatively, I suspect. How can software help us? How can privacy preserving technology help us? And say it less is an or and more of an and. I think that's gonna be so crucial.
2: Are you guys familiar with a UK business called Yoti, backed by Robin Toombs? Yeah, yeah. I, I always like Robin's take on identity. I think he has some really clever things to say, and I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm rooting for those guys. I think they're 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 working on the problem in a way that I find productive compared to counterproductive.
0: Yeah, it does feel like this could be a new frontier of, uh, and there is an economic business case, as you say, sorry, to be made, which is, you know, lowering the costs of this type of service can lead to, you know, obviously lower cost of operations, but then also uh, an increase in financial inclusion, which is a good story to be told. Let's move to the next story. Revoluts uh, have uh, issued results uh, and they show a bump a year as revenues grow, but so do losses. One had to dig a little bit deep on social media to get sort of, I guess, the, the true representation Of uh, exactly what Revolut's, I suppose, results were showing. One this was carried in AltFi. It was carried in again a lot of different publications over the last week. Um, Headline news: Revolut's annual revenues have jumped 57% from 166 million pounds. That is in 2019 to 261 million pounds in 2020. This is good. Uh, But Revolut puts this boost down to an enhanced appetite for digital financial management under lockdown. Customer numbers, this is a a fantastic metric of increase from 45% from 10 million at the end of 2019 to 14.5 million at the end of 2020. Uh, The revenue boost has also been helped by an increase uh, in its paying customers. Metal and premium subscribers jumped up by over half. That's pretty significant uh, for those NEOs who are looking at alternative ways to drive revenue. Uh, Losses Though did widen, report, uh, Revolut reported 168 million pound loss for 2020. That's up from 107 in 2019. They say those losses can be attributed to administration costs and bolstering its product and compliance teams with new hires. Emily, I'll come to you first about this one because you uh, you wrote the story for uh, Financial News and you inter- interviewed, obviously, uh, the Revolut CEO. Um, what can you say about this one?
4: Um. Yeah I think you're right that everybody kind of have a bit of different take on this because it really depends on what metric you looked at so for example I chose to go with the pre-tax loss because I think that's the most accurate representation of where the business is at in terms of if it's making money or not and it was over 200 million in, in losses last year almost double what it was a year earlier um, and I think that is because Revolut's constant motto is that we could be profitable if we want to be, but we're choosing to invest in the business. And that's still what I'm hearing from them for the year ahead as well. They keep saying that they had profitable months in November and December. Um, but again, that's all about how you look at it. And you can say that you have profitable months, but if you don't choose to report it over the year, I mean, your business is still having the same amount of capital, no matter what. Um, and for the year ahead, Revolut could choose to be profitable if it likes because it's got you know a good decent amount of subscriptions coming in, as you noted. Um, the revenues are doing quite well, um, particularly products that it's focusing on, things like crypto trading, stock trading. Um, I did some follow-ups with them after the results came out. I spoke to Nick and to the CFO, Miko. Miko. Um, and those two products are really big focuses for Revolut. They're developing a robo advisor in house at the moment. That's in the very early stages. And they're also um, they're in. If you have a metal account with Revolut at the moment and you're in the UK, you can see. Um, they're not really shouting about it, but they have a little tab now there called social trading, where you can view the um, top portfolios of traders on Revolut who are making you know thousands of percentages in returns. You can see what stocks they've invested in where they're making returns and it's just a way of trying to i guess get people more engaged with their app and have people coming back to Revolut rather than going somewhere like eToro or Robinhood or wherever else you could go for your trading stuff because that's really where all the money is right now you're not really going to make as much of a margin on lending from from people having money in the bank account as you might do from something like wealth trading Yeah, um, but but on that yeah the, just the with the profitability angle Miko's words to me were that, well, you know, we're going to take a view on this later in the year, but it's likely that we're going to continue to want to keep investing in the business rather than just reporting a profit at the end of the year, because that's how Revolut is staying ahead of everybody else. It's miles ahead in terms of customer numbers, has more offices around the world, it's in more geographies, um, and it needs to kind of keep that distance, I think, from people like Monzo and Starling if it's going to stay ahead, so...
0: Yeah, it is amazing. Uh, 80 million of the revenue uh, they created last year was from the wealth division. That includes their crypto and commission free trading. Um, and it is uh, like, again, uh, we get asked all the time, how do you build a neobank, uh, which, you know, where you can diversify different uh, business models, which doesn't rely on lending. And they seem to be doing it like they are doing it, you know, their lending business is pretty small, they don't necessarily have licenses to lend, certainly not proprietary lending in many, many markets. Um, which which means they have to actually keep an enormous amount of money in the bank. Um, so a lot of their, I think they've got about what 4 billion or so in the in the bank at the moment, but a, a massive percentage of that, 4 or 5 billion, a massive percentage of that is just literally kept there as customer protection. Um, it is a really interesting set of results. Sai, so um, I'll come over to you um, mainly for that sort of point that I just wanted you to explore maybe a little bit further, which is the diversification of the business model, which seems to be working right now for, uh, for Revolut.
1: Yeah, and also consider one of their investors, I believe, is SoftBank, who are very much a believer in land grab, uh, blitz scaling. And and Revolut's strategy has always been around blitz scaling. Um, And so it's so interesting to watch where you got Monzo, who focused on one market, trying new business models, really uh, ultra customer centric. Um, Starling, who have gone for the sort of more traditional banking business model, but absolutely delivered on the customer centricity as well. And then Revolut, who's gone blitz scaling, but Emily, you might know better than me. They overwhelm the overwhelming majority of their customers, I believe, are in the United Kingdom, and we've not seen figures on how many of those are inactive accounts versus active accounts. Um, and I suspect there'd be something in there that's quite powerful because compared to you know your daily active, your monthly active users um, on a, of a Monzo of a Starling probably look quite different to a Revolut. That's just my suspicion given how many features and given the nature of blitzscaling is you do end up with a churn problem. You see this in um, ride hailing apps. You see this in food delivery apps. There's always a churn out issue when you are blitzscaling. So it's just the nature of the model. But the flip side of blitzscaling is we were talking about Nutmeg earlier and Wealthfront and many others. In order to, to get to that point, you have to start to get to the cross-sell. And the banking business model was always based on cross-sell, but it was cross-selling to lending. Actually, they've got a broader cross-sell set of buckets to go at, and I think a lot of that's enabled by this new B2B FinTech supplier ecosystem where you don't have to run all of the manufacturing and distribution like you would have had to historically. If you're gonna build stock trading, if you're gonna build all of those sorts of capabilities, you can partner all the way down more or less get something to market quickly, and then if users adopt the thing, start to move and and adapt from there. So Revolut is in this interesting position where they can go around the world, see some of the best capabilities and slowly add those into their app and and diversify it that makes that subscription model see more and more value over time. So it's an interesting model. And uh, I think a lot of banks historically have tried this sort of like, this is what you get for the bundled account for $7.99 a month. But it was like, here's some mobile phone insurance. And it was always a bit underwhelming. Actually, as the feature breadth comes, maybe, maybe there's an audience for that. So it's going to be interesting to watch.
0: Yeah, and Shane, I'll I'll come to you. I mean, uh, in terms of that subscription revenue, so you know, MRR, how how I suppose valuable is that to the end valuation of an organisation like this? So, an organisation which is at the moment loss making, uh, as Emily said, could potentially be profit making again if it if it consolidated and stopped growing. Um, but how how valuable is it to investors to have MRR on the on on the radar, registering and registering like
2: really good revenues? I think it certainly helps, right? I mean, I think, again, in my business, people love the predictability of the model with whatever 65% of the revenue kind of rolling over year to year over year and then adding organic growth, et cetera. So, um, you know, full disclosure, right? Revolut's a TCV portfolio company. So, obviously, uh, you know, we we know that they're bullish on the business. Um, I actually started using the product myself when I moved to Europe because my UK bank uh, fired me as a customer. because they don't have an operating license in Europe, so I became a Revolut customer, and I have to say, of everything I've ever signed up for in my life, the customer acquisition and kind of the, the sign-on process is it's really really slick. Um, but I use it because the multi-currency bit is nearly free, so um, I don't trade crypto. I think the crypto trading bit is the drug that everybody can't stay off of, and I, and I think that's a very uh, I don't know how predictable a revenue stream that is, but, you know, I do have the metal card and I, you know, I have to say if you don't really need much from a bank other than really kind of current account functionality and payments functionality, then, uh, you know, I'm likely to stick around so long as they stay that kind of low cost player. I think the real question is, will they go in and raise prices after they have enough critical mass? Because a lot of banks are are in the multi-currency game, the, you know, the, the Forex game, the, the interchange game, so I'm, um, you know, I'd be interested to see sort of how it develops. But you know, from a from a start position, I think it's a super super good product.
0: Yeah, and Emily, uh, I'll, I'll, I was I've got t- two questions for you just before we finish on this one. Um, first of all, in terms of I suppose long term strategy, you've talked to the uh, you've talked to them this week. Where do you think they're going? So obviously into the US to grow, but is this uh, is is there? An, are we talking an IPO at in at some point?
4: Yeah, I think, I mean, Nick has made no, no bones about it and IPO is definitely on the cards for them. And personally, I think the year that you see Revolut say we're profitable for a whole year annually is the year, year or two before the IPO will happen. Because really, the only reason that Revolut would need to say we're profitable on an annual basis in their accounts is because of public perspective, investor perspective, you don't want to be going public without that. We've seen what happens now when tech startups go public and they're loss making and it doesn't usually end well. Um, And like I said earlier, Revolut could do that now if they wanted to, but they just have no need to. The growth is really what they're focused on. And like you said, with the US, that's a really big pain point for Revolut now because they launched their last year and then the pandemic happened and the whole year got wiped out. They weren't able to do any of the things they wanted to, not in the way that Revolute usually does it with a massive marketing blitz and just really hitting the market on all fronts. That's what we're going to see from them this year is that they're really going to go into the US properly, um, do major marketing campaigns. They have a CEO and a whole team out there. They're going to start restaffing the offices that they shut down during covid um, so the U.S. is going to be a really big front for them, um, but yeah, the IP, an IPO is definitely on the cards. It just it, they'll, they'll definitely report a profit before then, but it'll be a choice, not because um, they don't have it now.
2: I would say the uh, entering the U.S. market is a great way to spend capital. Uh,
4: <laughs> well, they have more uh, than enough of it. <laughs>
2: that's that is it's a long that's a long slog but uh no good good luck to them great team and super dedicated absolutely
0: absolutely uh let's move on to the next story which is which is one of ours um so this is a slight change to the normal routine i guess that we do on on fintech insider as we've got some news of our own this week uh so this is a shameless part of uh, self-promotion um but our exciting news is that 11FS Foundry, which is the financial service operating system built by 11FS, since today released its first drop, which is 11Money. 11Money um, is the first in a series of drops, uh, a pre-configured deposit account. Um, and non-banks can either use 11Money out the box or take inspiration from it and construct their own uh, products through a configurator portal. So si, I'm obviously going to come to you. You are the chief product officer for Foundry. Uh, can you tell us more about it and uh, the origins of it? It and what are we going to do with it?
1: Yeah, so the origins are, um, as you know, 11FS um, gets asked to build neobanks and challenger banks around the world, and we kind of found ourselves building the same technology time and time again. Uh, so the interesting thing about financial services is now there are some great providers out there and APIs out there. But you still have to kind of put those all together and put them in an app uh, or put them in a consumer experience. So while the banking as a service players are like the the Molly or the Stripe of of, of financial services and of banking, we really see this in the Shopify space. Like, well, how do you how do you take that proposition? How do you take that template and deliver it to market? So you can almost think of uh, Eleven Money as. Us putting our money where our mouth is. Like, what would it look like if 11FS designed a banking proposition? The answer should look a little like 11 money. Um, and yes, you can get a demo by going to 11FS.com forward slash foundry and checking that out. But really, as you know, Adam, you've, you've built them in the US. You've built them. You've just built some neo banking propositions around the world. You find that there's, there are these repeating patterns uh, that you kind of have to do, like the EKYC, you kind of have to do the, the really good transaction monitoring and spend and all of that kind of good stuff and the consumer experience. But there's also the stuff that neobanks have really differentiated on. What about the ability to freeze my card? What about the ability to do specific card controls? And what does the best experience for that kind of look like? So uh, in summary, 11 money is quick and secure account creation, compliance and identity checks, payments using uh, payments that can be made with cards online, uh, spend tracking, and also block uh, gambling blocks and other um, configurable uh, card controls that you can kind of stick in there. So uh, that's the basics of 11 money, um, but there's a lot more to Foundry than, than 11 money. It's just like the, here's one we made earlier version of what you could do with the Foundry platform.
0: Yeah, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you about this. To celebrate the release, uh, we're doing uh, we're we're joining the NFT collection, the NFT Bamag. And do you want to say a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so why not? Right, the the ETH cheap right now. The market's down. Why not get yourself an <laughs> NFT and and hold out and and, just, and see where you ought to be? That is not financial advice, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> that is not financial advice. Um, but yes, we've got a, a neon mint package. Of course we do. A silver package and a bronze package. So not only do you get the first edition 11 money uh, digital artwork, but also exclusive content and that all important 11FS swag. Of course... All proceeds will go to a carbon offsetting program, so we will make sure that these NFTs are carbon uh, negative, um, and we'll make sure that they also go to any remainders go to good causes. Um, I, I should say as well, we've got future drops planned. Um, so Eleven Money is the example of of a consumer neobank, but we will be doing examples of things like loans and buy now pay later and personal money management. So we are super excited for for what we can do. The engine's really there and built. Um, now we can start getting really. Cool creative and start doing cartwheels with some of these drops um, and again it's the here's one we made earlier version i'm even more excited for the users of the platform to get their hands on this thing and see what they could start to build
0: cool if uh, if anyone wants further information where are they where are they hitting up yourself personally a foundry website what's the uh, what's the link
1: yeah, you can email me simon11fs.com if you want to learn more, or you can uh, request a demo, uh, check out 11fs.com forward slash foundry. And from there, you'll also see the 11 Money page. Um, we will be launching a sandbox in the not too distant future. No API keys just yet, but that is coming soon. Excited to reveal all of that in the near future as well.
0: Cool. Um and then finally, we have the and finally uh, story of the week. Um, so let's get everyone back in for this one. Uh, this is uh, this was run on also on Finextra, which is that Yes Bank has launched a musical logo uh and for more information on that i'll delve uh india's yes bank has launched a musical logo designed to engage with customers more deeply than creating a multi-sensory experience Uh, customers will be able to hear the joyful heart-stirring melody when they log into online and mobile banking Uh, my mind's just gone to like cats meowing because that's what normally happens like we've done stories before when there's been like yeah like the the sound of money yeah and money i'm thinking anyway um When customers log into online and mobile banking at the point of sale, uh, interactive voice response, so IVR, uh, mobile ringtones. Jasnet Bashal, hopefully I've said that right, the chief marketing officer at Yes Bank has said, uh, with the new sonic identity, we have attempted to evolve the brand identity into a simple, memorable and modernized sound, a harmony to engage the customer on a multi-sensory level optimized for use in digital context. Um, I, I have got the link to the, <laughs> to the YouTube site. I don't know if I'm going to be able to play it, but we'll put it in the show notes for you guys when you, uh, when you listen to this, to this episode. Um, musical logos, anyone? So
1: h- here's the thing. MasterCard spent a load of money doing something similar. I think HSBC did as well. Everybody wants that, like, um, ba-da-ba-ba-ba. They want that thing because it's really powerful and everybody knows it. They want that. Um, you know, when you think about an HBO show, the, no. like, what TV show is that to you immediately? What comes to your mind? Um, that's how powerful it can be. Or the Netflix, boom It can really, really work in a media context and it can be really powerful. Uh, Outside of that, I'm a little less convinced, but we could move to a multi-sensory world where um, not everything is via a screen. And sometimes, you know, if you think about the the people who are visually impaired or you think about people that are uh, working through a device like a Google Home or an Amazon Alexa. I'm sorry if I've set off your device at home, by the way. Uh, (coughs) Then that sort of audio branding could make sense. But not everybody should get an audio brand. Like it just seems, I don't know. Maybe it's a little early, mind you. Then everybody has a logo, so maybe you should. But uh, making the mic, making one well, uh, is different to making one.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've said that the one that's got me recently is ring the doorbell. I hear that going off. All, I mean, I've got one myself, but like the associate, the association of that noise with ring is just like it, it's it's just there now it's it, it is the way that doorbells are going to sound probably for the next like 10 15 years um it's an, yeah an am- amazingly powerful uh shane um your company's just raised a lot of money you've got a lot of a lot of money to spend <laughs> is 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 this where it's going <laughs>
2: we we have a ton of inbound customer demand but i think i'd have to go down to priority number 12000 to get something <laughs> like a music musical logo on there and um as somebody who's just started using slack and anger for the first time in this in this business i don't think i need any more uh, digital prompts uh, yeah. or any notif- any any additional notification sounds uh, you know for my sanity they're probably going to end up doing some work on what that does to your uh, to your brainwaves, yeah. uh, for uh, to be honest, so uh, no, I'm I'm uh, I'm not long that idea, but uh, cool, uh, Emily, your f- final thoughts on this?
4: Yeah, I mean, it just for me, it's like if you're a bank, where do you expect people to be hearing this? Because, like, if it's like probably the only place you would ever really hear this noise is on TV adverts, and maybe Yes Bank does a ton of those, and so we're all going to hear them at the end, and then you will then that's where you're going to start picking up and remembering that noise and getting. The, the memory attachment to it that they're hoping for. But I, I personally, I really never have my phone off silent. Yeah. So I, I would never hear it anyway. And I'm not really using my bank or my computer where the sound is on, so I wouldn't hear it there. So, like, the the fact that I would need, I would need to be remembering, making a memory connection between a musical logo for a bank and for this to be an effective product, I just don't see it happening. I probably, like... Monzo has its cha-ching noise and I probably do remember that slightly. If I heard my phone go off somewhere and I heard that noise, I probably would remember it's Monzo. Yeah. But it's not it's nowhere near as pervasive as you'd think for like the Microsoft startup logo, the sound that like Simon said, McDonald's has its own sound. Like I don't see a bank ever really achieving that same level of of recognition so whether or not this is worth spending money on
2: i'm not sure it's like any of the banks i deal with you only get to see the logo after they hear their sound after you've put in your memorable word three passwords <laughs> you know had a two-factor authentication an email challenge and something else and then maybe maybe Good
1: you're in the IVR that. hole waiting on hold. You've pressed three, you've pressed four, you've shouted to speak to a person.
0: You should, you should be <laughs> a round of applause. Star six
1: times to try and get through to a person. And then eventually it says, oh, you can find that online. Goodbye. Um,
4: and then, yeah. <laughs> but we're all hoping to do away with customer call centres anyway, right? So you're hoping that nobody's ever going to ring you ever again if you're a bank. Why would you want to spend however much this has cost them?
0: for For something that might even be obsolete one day,
1: God bless the marketing agency that convinced them on this one
0: absolutely absolutely, and uh as you say, Shane, good luck to them uh that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to all you guys uh enjoyed that one um let's just go around in terms of where people can find out more about yourself uh shane what what's what's the best way for people to get in contact with you? LinkedIn um, cool <laughs> that's short and sweet Shane happy love that Marley um sorry, si, how about yourself?
1: Uh, at sy taylor on twitter or email me simon at 11fs.com uh, and emily
4: um, you can email me at emily.nicole at or you can find me on twitter at Emily J. Nicole.
0: And I'm at AdamD8 on Twitter or at 11FS.com. And thank you all for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast. Uh, Don't forget to leave us a review. It helps make things better and helps others find the show. Uh, As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media, search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcasts at 11FS.com. And for this week, thanks very much and goodbye.